turn with me to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Stuart Scott, in his book, From Pride to Humility, writes, It is probably safe to say that humility is one character quality that will enable us to be all Christ wants us to be. We cannot come to God without humility. We cannot love God supremely without humility. We cannot be an effective witness for Christ without humility. We cannot love and serve others without it. We cannot lead in a godly way without it. We cannot communicate properly without it. We cannot resolve conflict without it. We especially cannot resist sin without it. In short, we must embrace and live out humility in order to truly live and be who God means for us to be. The Apostle Paul agrees with that when he simply says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called with all humility. So the only way you can walk and please God, to walk in a manner worthy of God, is with all humility. And yet you cannot have humility where pride exists. Pride opposes humility. And pride is one of the most loathed sins. Proverbs says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's how God thinks of pride. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And James and Peter both say, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, because the proud person's arrogant. They're boastful. They're self-sufficient. They believe they don't need God. In fact, they make themselves out to be God. And so God sets himself against them. But God gives grace to the humble, those who know their need. And so God wants us to be humble. And yet, the reality is we all have pride. We all have this. We all have something that God considers an abomination. The the question is not, do I have it, but where is it and how much do I have? See, the problem with pride is we often are blinded to it. We don't see it. We all all have the tendency to think too much about ourselves and to think too much of ourselves. Well, this morning we want to look at how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what we're going to do is we're going to see the, the feature, the fruit, and the focus of humility and contrast that to the feature, fruit, and focus of pride. And my hope is, is that seeing this difference will help you discern whether you're humble or proud. Now, this, the next three chapters of Esther really begin a new section in the book where the theme that's related to God's providence is this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those three chapters are really going to be the theme of the next, uh, of that theme. Chapter 5 contrasts the humble 
and the proud. It's a contrast between Esther and Haman. And we, we would, could contrast some things, right? I mean, we know Esther's a woman. Haman's a man. Esther's a Jew. Haman's an Agagite. Esther's a lover of God. Haman's an enemy of God. But that's not the main contrast we're going to see. In fact, as we look at this chapter, we're going to see that Esther and Haman had a lot of similarities. Both Haman and Esther were promoted to the highest place in the kingdom that a man or a woman could be advanced. Both of them were given incredible favor and blessings, and both of them were unlikely candidates for this success. Esther was an orphan Jewish woman, and yet she became queen of the greatest empire in the world. That that clearly had nothing to do with her social status. In fact, it was primarily based on her looks. God had made her beautiful of form and face. But looks alone had not won her this position as queen. No, God had promoted her to that position. And we saw that acknowledged even in the last chapter when Mordecai declared that Esther had attained royalty for such a time as this. God providentially had put her in that place. Haman, like Esther, wasn't Persian. He was an Agagite, which meant he too was a foreigner. And yet he was promoted to the highest place in the kingdom, second only to the king. I mean, the chance of that happening were very slim, but God had given him favor too, and God had advanced him to this position. Haman's seat was placed above all the other princes, all the other servants, and the king even commanded everyone to bow before Haman and pay him homage. The king had even given Haman ultimate authority, giving him his signet ring, which allowed him to pass laws in the name of the king. So he was given incredible privileges, authority, and blessing. So this chapter presents two people incredibly blessed by God, both in positions of authority, and yet there's a vast difference between the two of them because one was humble and the other was proud. One trusted in God, the other boasted in himself. One was content with what she received, the other was discontent in what he had received. One had a concern for others, the other was only concerned about himself. The contrast could not be greater. And so let's look at discerning whether you're humble or proud. Let's look at this. Let's start in chapter 4 to kind of pick up the context here. Chapter 4, verse 15, and we'll just read through 15. Chapter 15. 5, I mean, excuse me. Then Esther, verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now, it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes And stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. 
So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet, all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. What a contrast. Well, we, we see at the end of chapter 4 that Esther's left in this difficult spot. Mordecai exhorted her to go to, before the king to seek his favor for her people because they had been decreed to be destroyed. And at first she was reluctant. She knew that could cost her her life. But Mordecai had reminded her that God had raised her up for this position for such a time as this. And being convinced of that, Esther was resolved to go before the king which was not according to law. And she was going to go and plead for her people. And if that meant, she may, per- she may perish in the process. And so, she went before- so before she went to the king, she spent three days seeking the Lord's favor. And that's where chapter 4 ends. And then chapter 5 begins on the third day. So the three days of fasting and prayer are passed over in silence. But we can imagine the agony of soul that she went through in three days she could be dead she had to prepare for that she needed to prepare also how to approach the king she needed much wisdom remember it was Haman who had won the favor of the king and who had passed this law to destroy her people so clearly Haman is in good standing with the king how could Esther possibly win over the king so that he would oppose his closest advisor I mean, this was a formidable task indeed. 
And so let's look at the, the, the characteristics of humility. The characteristics of humility and why God gives grace to the humble. The first, first is this. The dominant feature of humility is faith. The dominant feature of humility is faith. Without faith, you cannot please God. With faith, you can please God. Look at verse 1. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now this is, this is the pivotal point in the book where Esther goes and stands before the king. If he doesn't grant her favor, the book ends. But when you read this, it doesn't seem too dramatic, right? But, it, but it just, if this was a movie, the lighting would be dark. They were supposed to dim the lights then. What happened? <laughs> the music would be foreboding. You could hear the bass. And Esther would probably be, be trembling because if she didn't get favor with the king, she would be executed. So her going and standing before the king was like walking to an execution. And you can almost sense her fear and maybe trepidation in each step. And, and the text doesn't indicate this, but we can imagine she's offering up continual prayers to God. The king has supreme authority. In his power is life and death. And Esther hadn't been summoned before the king for 30 days, implying she'd lost his favor. But she goes anyway. She's convinced this is the right thing to do, even if it means she might die. So after fasting and praying and seeking God's face for three days, she goes before the king. And of course, that took great, great courage and faith. And she's willing to put her life on the line because she believes something. God had raised her up for such a time as this so that she could help her people. And because God had put her in this position, she knew she had to respond. So in humility, she trusted God. And beloved, that's how humility is seen. It's seen in your faith. It's seen and that you bow to the will of God. You, you put your confidence in God regardless of your circumstances. You're, you're not questioning God, accusing God. You're tr- trusting God. Now, I, I get it. There may be times where you've got to wrestle through that in prayer. I mean, that's what Esther did. That's what we saw last week where Jesus did in the garden. He had to wrestle through that. But in the end, you trust him and you obey. Why? Because you know God is all wise. You know God can do whatever he pleases. You know that God has his best for you. And so even though all outward indications would tell Esther to flee for her life and save her own skin, she doesn't do that. She was humble, and that's seen in her faith where she did what God wanted her to do even if it cost her her life. You see, ultimately, her life was in God's hands, not the king's. It was in God's hands. And so when you're humble, you respond in faith. And and the greatest example of humility by far 
is Jesus Christ. That is the greatest example of humility. His coming to earth was an act of amazing humility. I mean, imagine what Jesus had in heaven. Glory, honor, worship, majesty. And then we read how he humbled himself, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the the condescension of Christ is astounding because he went from heavenly glory to humiliation on a cross. We, We read about his life And what we see is he lived in complete submission to the Father's will. In fact, he says, that's my food, that's my delight. I'm here to do the Father's will. That included facing his wrath. And Peter reminds us, while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's the key, right? Here's humility. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what he kept doing. So Jesus' humility was seen in his faith. He's entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. By faith, he trusted his father, knowing that he knew best. So he willingly gave up his life for ours. He willingly entrusted himself to God, knowing the Father would vindicate him, knowing the Father was accomplishing far greater things through his suffering. See, that takes humility and faith. Where you trust God through your suffering, knowing he's doing something greater that you maybe can't see. Humility is seen in your faith where you trust God even in the darkest of trials so that when you're at work and you're being oppressed by your boss or a co-worker or maybe in your home when your spouse disrespects you, how do you respond to that? Do, do Do you return evil for evil? Do you do do you seek revenge? Or, or do you wait on God? Do you return a blessing instead? When you're, you young people, when, you, when your parents are unreasonable, at least from your opinion, do you chafe at that or do you humbly submit and trusting yourself to God? Or when your parents correct you, do you, do you think you know better than them or do you listen to their counsel? I think of of how Luke reminds us of 12-year-old Jesus who never sinned. He says he continued in subjection to his parents. See, humility is, is seen in your faith where you trust God. And the humble person believes the promises of God and acts in faith. He doesn't get mad at God. He doesn't accuse God. 
He puts himself under God and entrusts himself and lives by faith. And we see that with Esther. See, there's going to be times when, when God tests your faith. And he's going to test your faith to refine it. And the, and the way you know your faith is real is that you, in humility, you submit to him in the trial. You do what he says, even though it may seem like it goes against everything in you because you've learned something about your God. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He's going to deliver you because he's a very present help in trouble. Amen? Now, what's going to help you for your troubles is being prepared for them. Right? Trials are coming. The Bible tells us that, right? We're not going to, it's not your best life now. Persecution is going to happen. So be prepared. Esther knew what she was up against. She spent three days fasting and praying, seeking God's favor. The humble person sees himself as totally dependent on God for help. And so the humble person prays often. They pray often. They go to God in prayer. Are you a person of prayer? See, that's a sign of humility. Esther probably spent three days reminding herself of God's promises. And that's the other thing you do, right? The thing that's going to help you through your troubles is the promises of God and the character of God. Esther knew something about God. He had made a covenant with her people. God had promised that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that blessing would come through the Messiah who would deliver his people from their sins. She knew that. Well, that promise cannot be fulfilled if there are no Jews. So it was promises like that that probably gave Esther the courage she needed to go stand before the king. See, what gives you courage is knowing the promises of God and the character of God. And it's good to memorize some of those promises. Like, like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You, do you know that verse? It's one of the first verses I memorized as a Christian. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also so that you can endure it. Uh, don't you love that promise? Temptations are common. So what you're going through, others have gone through similar things. But, but this promise is also about God's character. Did you catch that? God is faithful. And sometimes you just need to be reminded of that. God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to go through a temptation you can't handle. He's going to provide the way of escape so you can endure through it. That's what you need to know in the midst of trials. And so in humility, Esther trusted God. She prepared herself by fasting and praying. And then on the third day, she acted because true faith always acts. True faith responds. It holds on to the promises of God and acts on those promises. Because faith, James tells us, without works is dead. True faith works. And so we see here what Esther did. She put on her royal robes. And then she wouldn't stood before the king. 
Now, did you notice what she did here? She put on her royal robes. She put on her best garments. She wanted to look her best. The, the royal robes here were probably the ones the king had given to her. It would remind him that he had chosen her out of all the women to be his queen. So what we see here is Esther doing everything in her power to get the king's favor. She, she doesn't presume God would give it to her without her best efforts. And so before, and so she puts forth her best efforts. She, she doesn't go before the king wearing sweats and a baseball cap and no makeup. No, God works through means. And so she did everything she could to look her best and then trusted God with her efforts. The dominant feature, though, of her humility is faith. You believe what God says, and you do it. You respond. Okay, then second, the fruit of humility is favor. The fruit of, her, of humility is favor because God blesses you. Look at verse 2. When the king saw Esther the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Oh, I love this. When the king saw her, he granted her favor. He lifted her up. Why? The, because God turns the heart of kings. Esther knew that verse. The king showed her kindness. So here's Esther. She comes humbly into his presence, dressed in her royal robes. You, you notice here, she doesn't come in demanding anything. She isn't coming in pleading anything. She stood quietly in his presence. And God used her humility to gain favor. The king extends to her the golden scepter. Oh, what a picture for us of how someone obtains grace. Because you cannot enter the presence of a holy God if you're a sinner. You, you can make no demands of God. You have nothing to offer God. You have no good works to present to Him. We have no merit of our own and that would indebt God to us. We come before him in humility, dressed only in the righteousness of Christ. But if you're dressed in the royal robes of Christ, then you can come before the king and attain mercy and help in time of need. He will extend to you the golden scepter. That's a sign of pardon. It's an annulling of the death sentence. It's a scepter of grace given only in Christ because Christ died in your place. He had the death sentence. Praise God, right? God gives you favor only in Christ. So the question is, do you have Christ? See, have you humbled yourself and bowed to Jesus Christ? That's how you get favor from God. The queen asks... What's troubling you, Queen Esther? I, like, I love that. It's not what's troubling you, Esther, but Queen Esther. You're my queen. You're, you're precious to me. I'm concerned about you. What's troubling you? 
And you can sense his heart here. I mean, he knows something's troubling her if she would break the law and come before him uninvited. So he asks, what's your petition? Again, a beautiful picture for us of our king and his concern for us, right? Beloved, you're the bride of Christ. Jesus loves you. He's already given his life for you. And he wants to know what's troubling you. And he invites you to come into his presence. Pour out your troubled soul before me. And this is what I love about the Psalms. I I think I mention this often, but I I love reading the Psalms because in the Psalms, you you see often these lament Psalms where the psalmist is just pouring out his troubled soul to God. And often the psalmist's trouble is troubled by God's apparent inaction. And God invites you to pour your troubled soul to him. What is troubling you today? You can go before the throne of grace. You have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. Because he knows your troubles. He's had similar ones. He invites you to come. Amen? And then we see the king here offer Esther incredible favor. Up to half my kingdom. In other words, what he's saying is, whatever you desire, I will do. Whatever you need, I have all the resources to accomplish it. I mean, what encouraging words. I would imagine many of her fears at that moment were relieved. And many times our anxieties and apprehensions are unnecessary because God is going before us. And we worry about things we shouldn't be worrying about. God is the one giving her abundant favor with the king. And this is what God does for you. But listen, beloved, God is not ready to just give you half the kingdom. He's ready to give you the whole thing. He's already given you his son, and with his son, he will give you all things. What a generous king. And he has all the resources you need. Your God can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what you can ask or think. And so in humility, trust him. Trust him. When you're humble and you do things God's way, he will give you favor and exalt you in due time. That's the the, the last part is what we don't like, in due time. Now, there's going to be times when you're passed over for a promotion or a position that you wanted. There will probably be times when you, you don't have enough money to get something you want. There will surely be times when you see other people getting everything that they want while you're struggling just to make things, make ends meet. But then God will get you in a place where you're content with what you have in Christ. That's a good place to be. As long as you have Christ, you have everything. You, you have Christ, you have all. And so humble yourself under his mighty hand. And when you do that, he will exalt you at the right time. So the fruit of humility is favor. Third, the focus of humility is on Christ and others, not self. The focus of humility is on Christ and others, not 
self. Look at verse 4. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. What we see here all the way through this first part of the passage is the humble person does not think of himself. He's concerned for the well-being of others. The whole reason why Esther went before the king was for her people. That's her focus. The humble person is concerned about the name of God and the glory of God. And and when you're concerned about that, then you prefer others over yourself, just like Jesus did for you. The reason you prefer others... It's because you're overwhelmed by God's undeserved grace and goodness that he showers on you continually in Christ. You know what you deserve. You deserve to be banished from God's presence forever. And yet you found forgiveness in Christ. And so your focus then becomes the good of others, preferring them, being patient with them, pointing them to Christ. The king here asks Esther what her request was. And as you're reading through this the first time, you probably go, you're probably not expecting what her answer. I mean, he just said, I'm willing to give up, give you up to half the kingdom, Esther. So that indicates she has favor with him. And it would seem this would be the appropriate time to ask for the release of her people. I mean, that's the whole reason why she went before the king. But she doesn't do that. Instead, she waits. And she asks if the king... And Haman can come to a banquet that she's already prepared. What this shows us is this. Esther had a plan to win the king's favor. She had a plan. You see, her goal was not simply to save herself, but her people. So at this point, if she would have made her request, the king may have pardoned her. But the goal wasn't to pardon her. The goal was to save her people. She had spent three days praying, thinking through the best way to do this. And James reminds us that when you're in a trial and you lack wisdom, you ask God and he gives it generously. You see, Esther knew something. She'd been married to this guy for a while. And she realized something about the king. He loved a party. He loved banquets. Remember when we looked at the first lesson and I told you that the word banquet appears like more in this book more than any other book in the Old Testament? It appears almost half the times just in this book alone. This guy loved a party. He loved good food, good wine, good company. Oh, that's the way to win his heart. That's the way to win his heart. So her plan 
was to do the king a kindness or two before she asked him for a favor. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. She wanted to warm his heart with food and friendship. Remember, she hadn't spent any time with him for 30 days, so she wanted to be with him so he could be reminded of her graces. She sought wisdom from God on how to win his favor and to know the right moment to make her request. She wasn't in a hurry. She's giving time for God to work in his heart. Now, why she invited Haman is not stated, but it would be appropriate to invite him since he was second to the king, and the king and him were practically inseparable. It seems she wanted him present because she was going to charge him with the worst of crimes, not only the destruction of the Jews, but her, but her own destruction. And by having him present, he would have to explain himself before the king. She had thought through her plan. And so the king graciously accepts her invitation. He commands Haman to be brought quickly, said they can do what Esther desired. And while at the banquet, the king doubtless had opportunity to converse with Esther, to enjoy her company, to remind her, be reminded of her lovely graces that appeared in every part of her behavior. And so being moved by that, the king again asks Esther what her request was. And again, he stresses he's willing to do whatever she petitioned. Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Well, notice verse 7. Verse 7. My petition and my request is... And then it stops. Yes, what is it? And here, again, you would think she would make her request and accuse Haman. Instead, she invites the king to another banquet for the following day. And then she promised, then I'll tell you. Why did she do that? Why did she wait? Well, we're not quite sure. But I think the overall context helps us understand what's going on here. Remember, she had spent three days beseeching God on how to best win the king's favor. She had come up with a plan. And the way to win the king's favor is by showering him with honor and by spending time with him in his presence. All of that had been saturated with prayer, so she's not in a hurry. She's sticking with the plan so God could work. Oh, and we're going to see God worked. God worked. God actually providentially wanted it to happen this way because God is going to get Haman to the pinnacle of pride before he brings him down. The crown that Haman aspired to wear for a day is going to have to put on his enemy. Haman must be made to serve the very man he wants to destroy. Haman must first prepare a gallows for Mordecai that he himself will be hanged on. Before God does away with Haman, God's going to humble Haman. And God is actually going to oppose him to his face because he's proud. God will get the king to have his favorite advisor hung on his own gallows. And God is going to turn all of these events on their head so his people grasped the greatness of God. 
That's what he wanted his people to see. The glory of God. The sovereignty of God. And how he controls everything. So clear, surely God moved on Esther's heart to know it's not time to make the request. If he can move the hearts of kings, he can move the hearts of queens. There must be a second banquet. So this is the humility of Esther. The dominant feature of humility is faith. She trusted God in her trial. The fruit of humility is favor. God favored her before the king. And the focus of humility is concerned for the glory of God and the well-being of others. She wasn't focused on herself. Now, in contrast to humility is pride. And we need to look at this because, as I said at the beginning, all of us struggle with this. All of us have a remnant of, of this in us, some more than others. But we all have this. And if you think you're some of the less, then you're probably some of the more. Let's look at the characteristics of pride. Look at verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she, has, which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Here, here's what we see about pride. The dominant feature of pride is arrogance. It's arrogance. After Haman left the banquet, he sends for his wife and his friends for the sole purpose of boasting to them about all his accomplishments. And he begins by recounting his glory. He enumerates to them all the blessings he'd received. He wants them impressed with his privileges and his honor because he believed that's what made him great. And we need to ask ourselves a question. What actually makes someone great? Is it money? Is it degrees? Is it accomplishments? What makes someone great? Well, Haman, he begins by telling them about the glory of his riches. The word glory here means weight. He, he was literally throwing his weight around. He wanted them to see how majestic he was. He boasts in his wealth. Look at all the things I possess. Look at the mansion I live in. Look at the fancy cars I drive. Look at the nice clothes that I wear. And he believed those things indicated his worth, that he was somebody. See, but beloved, your worth is not seen in what you own. Your worth is seen in your humility and love for God and others. I mean, just ask yourself the question, what, what kind of people do you like to hang around with? Do you like to hang around people who all they do is talk about themselves? Yeah, I saw nobody raise their hand. Or do you like to be around people who encourage you and care about you 
love you. See, that's what indicates their worth. It's seen in their love. When Haman boasted in his riches, he he didn't believe that it was the Lord who makes one rich. He didn't believe that. David says both riches and honor come from God. It's in his hand to make one great. That comes from God. He gives you riches. He gives you honor. He makes one great. Moses said this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. God enables you to make wealth. God does that. That's why throughout the Bible, you're encouraged to give up your first fruits to God in recognition that he owns everything. So everything you have is his. And you're actually a steward of what he's entrusted to you, and he's going to hold you accountable to that someday. How you used his resources. And so the humble person recognizes God's ownership, and he recognizes, hey, I'm a steward of this. The arrogant, in contrast, boasts in his riches. They don't understand something. Someday, money is going to fail. When was the last time you saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Right? You can't take it with you. Your money is going to fail you. Haman, it didn't help Haman when he was condemned to death. And so because he was arrogant and boasted in his riches, guess what God's going to do? God's going to take away his riches from him and give it to someone more deserving. Haman, we see here, he boasted in his children. We're going to find out later. He had ten sons, which was a great blessing. But he acted as if his ten sons were all his doing. When the Bible clearly teaches children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, Psalm 127. So it was the Lord who actually had blessed him with ten sons, but he arrogantly boasted as if it was all his all doing. And so because he's ignoring God and not giving glory to God, guess what's going to happen? God's going to take away his sons from him too. Haman then boasted in his position. He recounted to his wife and his friends, and the text says, every instance where the king had magnified him. Oh, my. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that would have been hard to be there, right? You ever been around people like that? All they, t- I mean, you got to get your boots on when you're in a position like that. Hard to listen to. So you know that someone's proud when all they do is talk about themselves. He, Haman failed to recognize God had promoted him to this position. The Lord is the one who makes great. He, he, he's the one who exalts and he's the one who tears down. Haman exalted himself. So God will humble him. Oh, but Haman's not done boasting yet. He he bragged about his honor. Do you know what? Besides the king, I was the only one invited to Queen Esther's banquet. In fact, the queen is inviting me to another banquet tomorrow just for me and the king. And I will be there present when she makes her special request to the king. Oh, yeah, you will be there. (laughs) 
and God's going to bring them down. So the dominant feature of pride is arrogance. And like Haman, proud people believe life's all about them. Life's about their happiness, their accomplishments, their worth. But beloved, like I said before, you cannot have humility where pride exists. They oppose one another. Pride is one of the most hated sins in God's sight. Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's an abomination to God. But the problem is that pride is everywhere and it manifests itself in many ways and often we're just blinded to our own pride. And though we hate to admit it, all of us have some degree of pride. The question is, do you see yours? Do you see yours? Well, let me give you some symptoms of pride. See if any of these sound like you. Pride focuses on self. It's a self-focus. It's boasting in yourself like Haman did. But the opposite of that's true. Sometimes pride manifests itself in self-pity. Well, the focus is still on you, but you're just wallowing in the fact that you don't have certain gifts or things and woe is you, and because you want those things so people will think well of you. That's pride too. Pride is seen when you think you're better than others. You're looking down to them. It's seen when you have an inflated view of your importance. It's seen when you talk too much because you think you have what you have to say is more important than everyone else. Pride is seen in control where things have to go your way. Pride is being consumed by what others think of you so that you become a man-pleaser instead of a God-pleaser. Proud people are devastated or angered by criticism because it reveals your weaknesses. The proud person is unteachable. They lack compassion. He doesn't admit when he's wrong. He never asks forgiveness. He minimizes his shortcomings while he maximizes others' shortcomings. The proud person uses others instead of serving them. The proud person resists authority because he detests being told what to do. And the proud person is often sarcastic or degrading toward others to make himself look good. That's a few examples of pride. Maybe you felt the sting of some of those. As I studied this, I surely did. We got to turn from pride to humility. And and one way to turn from pride to humility is simply seeing yourself rightly in the sight of God. See yourself rightly in the sight of God. Who are we to be boastful? Everything we have is from God. Everything your life, your breath. Right, your possessions, your intellect, your salvation. It's all from God. 
So why do we boast as if it's not from God? As if we, we hadn't received it. No, we received all these things. God will oppose the proud. Remember that. He opposes the proud. And he's going to oppose Haman to his face because he gloried in himself. He made himself to be God. So the, 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 the dominant feature of pride is arrogance. Secondly, oh, get this, know this. The fruit of pride is discontentment. The fruit of pride is discontentment. Look at verse 9. Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. But he controlled himself and went to his house. Do you understand what's going on here? Here's a man at the height of earthly glory. Was there ever a man more esteemed and more honored as Haman? Here's a man with everything the world says you have to have. And so from outward appearances, Haman, of all people, should be happy. And he is happy, isn't he? He he leaves the banquet. He's glad of heart. He is having a good day. And he's heading home to boast all about it. So he comes out of the banquet. You could just picture him whistling a tune, a little skip in his step. And he gets to the palace gate, and as he's walking by, everyone is standing up, showing him honor, paying him homage. And then he sees one guy who wouldn't do that. One guy. And he's filled with rage. He had everything going for him great power, amazing influence incredible authority, boundless wealth, ten sons, and exceeding honor. He, he is at the pinnacle of worldly greatness. He has everything the world could offer him. And yet we find him being discontent because one man wouldn't bow to him. One man. There's a fly in the ointment. Everything that was going so well was ruined because one guy wouldn't show him honor. One commentator said this, he's drunk with worldly glory, but his soul is still thirsty. Oh, what a telling remark. See, pride never leads to contentment. Contentment is a mark of humility. The arrogant person is never satisfied. He never has enough. His soul is still thirsty. Because all the world has to offer you won't satisfy your soul. It won't make your soul content. You can only find that satisfaction in Christ. You were designed by God to find your pleasure in Him alone. Because He's the source of all joy and pleasure. That is why Jesus alone can satisfy your hunger and quench your thirst so you hunger and thirst no more. And when you have tasted of Christ and when you have drunk of Christ, oh, you want to keep going to that fount because your soul is satisfied. Amen? 
Have you found your satisfaction in Jesus? Sometimes we forget that. And we start pursuing these other things that can't satisfy us. They weren't meant to. And I would just urge you, turn back to Christ. Get back in the word. Remind yourself of the, of the beauties and wonders of Christ and all that he's done for you. Fruit of pride is discontentment. It's also dissatisfaction. Look at verse 13. Haman says, he, he, he's, he's boasting about all that he has. And then in verse 13, he says this, yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. So he's boasting of all his worldly glory, all his honor, all the things he thought would satisfy him, but he's not satisfied. Because one man, his enemy, won't honor him. Listen, you will never be satisfied seeking the things of the world. You'll never be satisfied. Have you figured out yet that the things that you think you have to have ultimately don't satisfy you? Have you figured that out yet? That's a good lesson to learn while you're young. They won't satisfy you. And so you can have position, you can have power, you can have money, but you're not going to find true happiness and joy in life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because of this. Man at enmity with God cannot be happy. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to humbly come to him and he promises to satisfy your soul. And so as Christians, we've got to remember that and keep going back to Christ to find true joy and purpose and meaning and satisfaction and contentment because he's worthy. See, the person full of pride wants to be like God, but you know what? He can't be God. He wants everyone to honor him, but guess what? Not everyone will. You know, someone has said, everyone has their Mordecai. What is yours? What is yours? What is causing your dissatisfaction? See, the fruit of, the fruit of pride is discontentment and dissatisfaction. The fruit of humility is favor and grace. Which do you have? And then finally, we see the focus of pride is self. The focus of pride is self. Look at verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. How would you like to have counselors like that? Your wife and your friends, they just suggest, hey, have a gallows built 50 cubits high. And then have, then go to the king and have Mordecai hang on it. Then joyfully go to the manga. See the focus? This is what's going to bring you joy. The focus of pride, what makes you happy? That's the focus of pride. What makes you happy? Now, 50 cubits is about 75 feet. Seven and a half stories. I mean, that's way taller than this building. They're going to build that overnight because he's got the money. Why so high? Well, they knew 
His pride had been wounded and he wanted revenge. See, revenge is a sign of pride. You take matters in your own hand, that's pride. If he built a gallows 75 feet high, guess what's going to happen? Everyone's going to hear about it. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to be the talk of the town. And everyone would know who it's for. You see, Haman could show his power by making a public spectacle of his enemy. I mean, after all, he's second to the king. So, Haman, show your power. Wield your influence. And after you've taken revenge on your enemy, you're going to have joy. And it says, Haman was pleased with their advice. He believed it would actually make him happy. I mean, again, just put this in what's going on here. Their evil plan pleased him more than all the wealth and the prestige he enjoyed. I mean, what sad advice. Even if Mordecai were hanged, do you really think that would satisfy Haman? Wouldn't there be other Mordecais? Yeah, there would be other Mordecais because his pride would raise them up. You see, his problem lay deep in his heart. He needed a, deep, a new heart that only God could give him. But, oh, beloved, God only gives that to the lowly. Only to the lowly. Have you humbled yourself before God so that you can actually find true happiness in Christ? Listen, if you don't deal with your pride, it's going to bring you down. Your pride will bring you straight to hell. Do you understand that? If God doesn't humble you, that's where you're going. And so humble yourself under his mighty hand. He's ready to give Christ to you. Come to him and be saved. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so we see this contrast through this passage between the humility and pride. And the the dominant feature of humility is faith. The dominant feature of pride is arrogance. The the fruit of humility is favor. The fruit of pride is discontentment. The, The focus of humility is God's glory and the good of others. The focus of pride is your own glory and your own self. And so which of these describe you? Which, which one describes you? Are, are there things this morning that God has revealed to you where you see pride and you need to change? I, I would just urge you, repent of that. Humble yourself. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we're, we're thankful that this book is in the Bible and this chapter's in the Bible because, Lord, we know we all still struggle with pride. 
Lord, we want to promote ourselves at others' expense, at your expense. And Lord, that's an abomination to you. I, I pray we, we, you would help us see our pride, repent of it, turn from it so that we can be more like Christ who preferred others, who loved others, and who was concerned for the well-being of others. Oh, Lord, make us a people like that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.